0: Welcome to the Forest Educator Podcast. I'm Ricardo Sierra. I'm really excited to speak with you today, April. Everyone, we're, t- we're talking with April Zyko from St. Johnsbury, Vermont, I believe. that's Is that right?
1: Yeah, yes. So you're up in the Saint Northeast John's- Kingdom. That is the Northeast Kingdom. So we're in the Northeast part of the state and we call it the Northeast Kingdom because uh, it's a really unique part of of our state and we still have a lot of untouched nature. And I like to tell people about it and not tell too many people because we don't want them all to come.
0: <laughs> exactly, yeah. I've been up there a couple of times going to a couple of colleges to just mm-hmm. hang out up there, educate, whatever. And I, it's a really different landscape than it is when you're in just your typical New England, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Southern Vermont, Southern New Hampshire, or whatever. It's just a really I I found it really beautiful and very it just changed me. I was it was a really nice experience. I was not prepared for that. I thought I was just going
1: Yeah it's there to
0: say hi and stuff. And it's just different. It's really different. For
1: sure. And I, so one of the things about uh, Vermont is if you're not born here, then you technically are not a Vermonter. Uh, So I like to say, this is something that I've heard someone else say is as soon as I found out about Vermont, I got there as soon as I could. But one of the things, one of the fun stories, you would appreciate this. I was at a, a big expo in Baltimore and I was running a holistic health center at the time and I was there buying things for our store. And this whole aisle was Vermont based company. And like they had all congregated, or I'm sure that they talked with the organizers to have all their businesses in this one spot. And there was just like this energy of what is this? What are yeah. these? Who? Are-? And it Who was a lot people? of products. Yeah, and it wasn't Ben and Jerry's. It was like small independent businesses, herbal businesses, places or selling natural products. It was a, a natural whole foods expo. I think was the name uh-huh. of the thing. But I was like, oh my gosh! And I was in college, and I said next year when I graduate. I am taking the summer to travel and I'm going to Vermont. I am going to meet this person, like as if it was a a person. And it's just, there's something really unique about it. That was in 98 and I didn't move here until 2006. It was as soon as I could get here. But it's, I just feel really lucky to live where I do. And the work that you do as a forest educator, and I consider myself a a nature-based educator, it's so alive and vibrant here in Vermont. And so now part of it is like, How do we share this information and get this message and get this access to children all over the country, not just in this little pocket of this beautiful state of Vermont?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because we sometimes get caught up. I know a lot of educators that will just go, I started a homeschooling group, or, oh, I started something. And then all of a sudden, 10 years go by and you haven't really gone anywhere. And you're just like totally absorbed in that little local bubble. And then we think, oh, okay, let's step outside of that and see Mm -hmm. the national picture, the regional picture and have those like expos. That's, what's great about the natural foods place is that they go, Mm -hmm. Hey, let's have a big expo. Let's spend the money to go down there. Yes. Meet a lot of people. And I don't always find that nature people have enough fat in their budget to be able to say, (laughs) Hey, I'm going to go to Philadelphia. I'm going to spend $500, $600 to stay in a hotel and we're going to drive down, we're going to have all the meals and then we're going to set up a booth and then do this whole thing. Most people don't have two grand or three grand to shell out on networking or whatever. So that makes it harder in our field, I think.
1: Absolutely. And I think we, many of our independent programs operate on such small margins and really it's hard for them to have those kinds of opportunities for professional networking and professional development. And which is one of the the benefits of this online world is that we can connect. Yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's exactly why I'm doing the podcast. That's what's, what I love about it is that I'm just like, Hey, we got to do something. So let's put this out and make that happen. And what's nice is that you don't have to spend $2,000, but if you want to give me $3 a month at my Patreon. <laughs> I'm not going to say no.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> I love to I love supporting you Rick. I think that I have listened to not the last couple of episodes because we're recording shortly after the holiday break but as soon as you started um your podcast i had already been following you on social media and thanks for all the great content that you share there but the what i love about the podcast is you're connecting us we have we go by different terms and we have our approach our forest educator or whatever whatever the term sure. is that we use is different and it's different around the country it's different around the world but the podcast is just something that I really look forward to. And I know that you went from one one episode a week to two. And I just love it because I feel like we operate there's in this bubble sometimes. And when we get to listen to you on the podcast, it's just great. And so I reached out to you this summer and we've had several kind of mastermind zooms where I'm like, Rick, I got to tell you some things and I'm doing my business. And I just really appreciate that. And because there's not enough of that for us, and. So a little of my background is I, in 2010, started a nature school and I didn't do it in isolation. I did it in community. I love that episode that you did about the, the, what you didn't call it, lone wolf. What did you call it?
0: Oh, the maverick and the...
1: Yeah, the maverick and the collaborator. I am definitely part of the collaborator model because I know I can get a lot farther when I have the support of others and when I give my support to others. So Mm -hmm. in 2010, there was a group of uh, families in my community here in St. Johnsbury. We're a small town. I think we have about 7,000 people. And then... There, there were preschool options, but there was nothing like outdoor, nature-based. So several moms got together and started to brainstorm. And then we started to have these community forums to make sure, is this viable? And we found some collaborations. We got this was even before Zoom World, right? 2010. Right, right. So we were on the phone and had some phone conferences when you put the specialized phone in the middle of the table and you talk That's to right. someone far away. Do you remember? Yeah. I remember. Yeah. And so Buffy Cheek was, I just can't forget her name, but she was just so inspiring that she was a director of a nature school. And she talked to us about some of the the things to consider as we were getting started. And that program was going to, we decided to do it within partnership with a Mm -hmm. museum that was already an established nonprofit. So it was easier to, it's when you partner with someone or partner with an organization, it's much easier to get started. And one of the things was that the museum said, this has to have proof of concept. This cannot, this cannot be a burden it right. you know, has to be a profitable endeavor. And so that was the start of it. But even a couple of years before that is when Richard Louv's book came out and I had just become right. a mom. And that book was really to me like a call to action. It's really important to me. Like nature was always a big and part, important part of my childhood. And I wanted that to be a big part of my children's childhood. And so when this opportunity came to collaborate to create this nature school, I jumped on it. And so that That school's name is the Bulge Nature School. I ended up there uh, for four years and it was wonderful. And I just, since that time, the field has grown so much and the number of schools has grown so much. And it's just, it's been a wild ride. But one of the things that I found when I was in that program is I began my career, I've been teaching 23 years now, but I began my career as a public school teacher. And when I was working in the nature school, At the time, it was a part day, part year, private pay program. So it was really limited. So as far as access to the program, it it was challenging. So my goal after being there for four years is I really want to take these ideas and go into the public school, Mm -hmm. go back into the public school. And because I was a preschool teacher, I've taught a variety of grades. I've been a reading coach. I've done different roles, but preschool and particularly being here in Vermont, it was embraced. And so I was able to bring this nature-based approach to the preschool program. And I've been doing that really ever since. And concurrent to that, I've also been doing teacher trainings. And it's just been really awesome to see the interest and the passion that educators have in getting kids outside.
0: Yeah, that's really exciting because a lot of times people will start a nature program and it's usually outside of the public sector where when you jump into that public school thing there's a lot of other hoops you have to jump through and you have to get people on board and then there's people that give pushback sometimes cuz they're like hey what why are you making me go outside i'm fine with them being in my classroom or whatever and i could just imagine that's a an extra step so somehow it like you're saying in vermont People were, they were pretty open with it. The mm-hmm. administrators, the teachers, Absolutely. everybody seemed okay. Parents were okay.
1: Absolutely. And I see too that part of it is to really realize how much curriculum that you can do outdoors. And so yes. I continue to be a preschool teacher. Even now I'm continuing. I work part-time. Uh, I teach just three days a week uh, in the preschool classroom. I am able to do my curriculum as easily outdoors as I do it indoors, because I've been doing it for a while. And I've put thought and intention into the the learning environment that I offer. And I like to think of it as equally important, the time that we spend outside as the time we spend inside. So I don't consider myself, I'm not a forest school teacher. I'm not a teacher who teaches exclusively outside. Uh, Those things sound lovely and amazing, yet, very challenging and <laughs> it, it has right, its own right. challenges. Uh, so, what I call myself is we all have like terms, is a nature inspired teacher. I so love to that. Me, nature, it inspires my teaching. And myself, like throughout my whole life, anytime whether it's through joys or through grief, nature has been such a healer and in such Mm. important part of my life. And I can see how disconnected children are to nature. And so I take it on as part of my role is to bring nature both into our indoor classroom and to really think about the experiences, even in a small space in a public school that the children get to have in the outdoor space.
0: Yeah, that's really... it's a really interesting thing that you're bringing this up because when the forest school movement, I'm not sure exactly like when it was born and I know that it kind of originated in the Scandinavian countries, Norway, Finland, Sweden, et cetera. And then I know it migrated into the UK. And right now the UK just seems like it has an incredible wealth of programs there. And they have a very specific fit, what do you call it, philosophy or Curriculum or an approach, and if and, but then here in America it's a little bit different because we don't have that same structure. Where you know, if you're going to take and bring nature into a school, you don't have. They're not requiring you to be for a school certified, and they're not necessarily willing to embrace that complete philosophy necessarily because it's a big step, maybe for them. Absolutely, so, interesting process how right. it's happening here.
1: And I, what I really encourage my adult students, I teach, I teach workshops. I also teach college courses. One of the college courses that I was able to help get, to bring to life in the fall of 2023 is called nature-based approaches for early childhood and afterschool programs. Yeah. Uh, and this is a course that I teach with the community college of Vermont. It is a three credit course that my undergraduate students who are working on whether their child care certificate or their after school certificate or their associate's degree at CCV, they can take this course at their matriculated students. They can take this course as an elective. And the, the first round of it this past fall, the students were like so excited about this. They're like, yeah. I've heard about this. I don't know a lot about this. I feel overwhelmed by this. I feel excited about it. I had one student who said, I don't even like nature. I don't like nature at all, but I know it's important for kids. So I'm signed up and I I just want you to know that I'm on the fringes here. And it's, yes, but because for forest schools and really that you're right, originated in Scandinavia and Denmark, how they did their approach is going to look different than how we do. And so that I think that it's really important that we have the opportunity to really think about what works for me. And so Mm -hmm. we're not trying to recreate something. We're not trying to, for me, I'm not trying to call myself a four-school teacher because it's not what I do. And my aim for most of the adult students that I work with isn't to be fully outdoors 100% of the time. If they want to, awesome. And in some seasons, that's totally doable. And in others, it's not. But rather, I really like to think about how do we support educators so that they can still teach to the learning standards that they're obligated to teach to but really honoring children's play child development the best practices that we know what kids need and when we're thinking about all of the all of the challenges that are happening in our world it's so easy to feel like Really overwhelmed by all of it. But by working yeah. with little people, young children, so early childhood is defined as zero to age eight here in the US. And so when we mm-hmm. talk about early childhood, we're really talking about birth to grade three in the United States. And those children need nature. They need it for so many reasons. And so what I like to tell my students about, if you're working in an environment, if you're working in a school or a child care center that's not so sure if this is, if this works here, we're not trying to, you're not going to start by taking huge risks in your teaching practice. You're not bringing in bushcraft. You're not doing flint napping and bringing in knives and starting open fires. That's not where we start, but can we bring in a bunch of pine cones? Could we Some I heat with firewood, so I'm always like when as I'm feeding the wood stove, I'm pulling birch bark off of the firewood because I'm like, Oh, that's such a great material! You know, can we bring in some natural loose materials? Could we add some plants to our indoor classroom? Could we create you know, we add some perennials to our outdoor classroom? These are these little small actions that we can take, and that's why I like to say nature inspired because. We don't have to throw everything out and totally shift our thinking, but we yeah. slowly bring it in. And what I found is that the teachers that I've worked with who've done this begin to find a lot more joy.
0: Yeah, that's right. A
1: lot more joy in their own life because it's, this is really healthy for children, but it's also really healthy for adults too.
0: Yeah. That's actually what uh, Angela Hascom yes. uh, talked about. Uh, she said that, that actually she's been doing a lot of research on the benefits of the children going outside and playing. And she does that whole uh, occupational therapy approach. And it's like very, very well researched and everything else. And she was like, yeah, last, when I interviewed her last summer, she said that her net, her focus now is actually studying the benefits to the educators, to the teachers, their satisfaction in in their life, their joy, because they were really struggling. It's hard to be around kids that, that are struggling maybe emotionally, there's that whole regulation element. Mm -hmm. And when children are feeling a lot of anxiety and depression and whatever going on Mm -hmm. and they're five years old or whatever, it's really tough to then try to then adhere to the standards of what you're supposed to do in your job, knowing that they're not even going to get it because they, they can't get it because of what's going on. But then you add in that nature piece and the emotional regulations, whatever starts to uh, impact them in a positive way and suddenly you're like hey wow I'm actually helping them relieve something that's really stressful and painful and I'm able to teach and it's not even that hard you <laughs> like it's not absolutely
1: yeah it's so I, I like to think about when when people are feeling this call to yeah. to bring more nature in and to shift some of their teaching practices what I love in, in your approach with the podcast too is that it's a very we've got lots of different voices and this can look like lots of different ways. This doesn't have to be like a one size fits all. But what I like to think about is really what's most important right now in your classroom. So like you're talking about social emotional development. We know that going outside supports social emotional development. There's Mm -hmm. gobs of research that tells us about that, that we can reference. And what I see in my practice is that the social skills of children look different outside than they do inside. Right, and right. so we have this opportunity to do collaboration and teamwork. Social interactions look different. It's like we can really tap into fostering these positive social skills. And we didn't have to spend a huge amount of money to make that happen. We just have to have the space for us, the time and the space for us to go outside.
0: Have a little training, having some mentoring through it. Maybe getting yep. a few outdoors stumps to sit on and logs and some kind yes. of stuff that's really nothing. When you look at the average cost of equipment and spaces in a public school budget, dollars. you're just like, that's nothing. It's just like, here, here's yeah. whatever, 20 grand, make it happen. It's, oh my God, that, yeah. that would be easy to do for, for yeah. sure.
1: One of the I teach the course that I mentioned, but then I also teach a college course called we have the community college, but then in Vermont, we also have Vermont State University and they have this center for schools and the Vermont State University Centers for Schools, I'm able to teach a course there. I teach two different ones. And because I think that these are the two leverage points, particularly for public school teachers. But one is, is I call it growing outdoor classrooms. And it's all that it's like a step by step process of how do you develop an outdoor classroom. And this is one that it can feel really overwhelming because sometimes what happens is you are one teacher in the school that's got this grandiose vision and you're the lone wolf and you're go- trying to like right. do all of these things by yourself. And so one of the modules in the course that I teach there, or it's a virtual course that I teach, but it's called Grow Your Team because you need a team, like you can't do all the things by yourself. And so the two courses, growing your outdoor or growing outdoor classrooms, and then curriculum development for nature-based educators, like having the space and then being able to understand how you're still addressing the curriculum. And really, because I'm a place-based educator, it always comes back down to play. So it's like, how do we, it, it, there's, it can feel really hard but when you work in community i feel like with a small group of other educators who are working in a similar age range as you and you begin to develop some curriculum and this is not like a this isn't like a boxed curriculum this is rather saying oh the area that we live in the area here in Vermont, we do maple sugaring. It's a really right. part of important part of our history, and it's a part important part of our culture and our history. And so, maple sugaring is a topic that comes up because there's always a family—not always, but most often there's at least one family that sugars and so yeah. it's that's becomes part of our curriculum and then it's oh wow where how can we tie that into and there's their science and math there's social studies there with the history of it and then because i'm working with the younger children thinking about fine motor and gross motor and all of the developmental benefits of being outside it's it's a, to me it's such a no-brainer but it's not yeah. to other people who haven't framed it that way I think really helping educators to see the developmental benefits of this approach and then really thinking about the practical applications. How can I actually do this in my classroom with second graders? I had one of my students last last spring when I did uh, the Growing Outdoor Classrooms course. He was a fourth grade teacher and he was like April I'm a little bit beyond the early childhood, but can I still, does it still, can I still get in? I'm a fourth grade teacher and I'm like, yes, we welcome you. We want this, uh, you know, for all ages. Um, and we want it for adults too but i think that just knowing that when we create this space it doesn't have to be thousands of dollars most of the students that i've that i've taught over the years in doing this work is are on shoestring budgets particularly the ones yeah. in child care centers where they're like yeah we have zero budget but it's such ex- exciting work and i think really holding the vision of what you want to do with your with your physical space but then also with your teaching it's The kind of shifts that I see is really been quite profound in some of the teachers and lots of the kids that I've worked with over the last however many years.
0: Yeah. What do you think is the most, or what are some of the things that teachers say or that they see their students um, benefit? Because if I look at it and I go, okay, we're Mm going to teach whatever, I don't even know what you're going to teach in that preschool, but it's, say you're trying to teach something and you're inside versus teaching it outside. And is there... I'm sure, like, what it's easy to say those things and go, oh yeah, blah blah blah. Being outside is good. Here's a study. We we spend a million dollars to do a study to find out that being outside is great, and we're like, yay! Yeah,
1: we knew I'm that. Sure, that money
0: isn't <laughs> necessary for anything else. Right?
1: Yes. So what I like to think of this as like leverage points, right? So it depends on who the teacher is and what environment they're in, or who their administrator is who their administrator is and what's important to them, because we want to work collaboratively and as a team. And so I feel like there's a lot of roads that lead back to getting kids outside. So I already talked a little bit about social emotional development. That's really, to me, just so important. We have so many children who are really struggling that have experienced trauma or are going through adversities. And we know that Social emotional development, their increased empathy, stress reduction, it's there's so much there for them when they connect with nature that they really, a great example is we have raised beds in my current preschool and last spring, some of the, we had a really hot day and the. Mm plant was like so wilted and just it was like really looking stressed out and the empathy that kids show and oh we have to help save save the plant and it's yes we're building in that idea that that age-appropriate kind of environmental stewardship and that connection to nature we want kids to have really positive experience and feel this sense of connection to nature and that they have they can have a positive impact and so I think that whole stewardship aspect and of nature-based education is hugely important. Um, and so I feel like the in my own childhood, I had a really strong environmental identity because my mom, her primary business was in a greenhouse. and so I was constantly in the greenhouse interacting with plants and she we relied on herbal medicine and we had we lived in a, a forested area. And so I had a huge environmental, kinship or identity with with the plant world and it was just part of what if you're a big huge part of your identity is just an indoorized life that doesn't go out uh, so minecraft
0: or or... yeah
1: and it's we want them to have these positive interactions and this doesn't mean that we have to go to national actually i love going to national parks but that's not the reality for a lot of the children that we work with but we have the opportunity to put in a little raised bed is it going to really be like farm to table? Is it going to really impact what we serve in our meals, in our food service program? Not necessarily, but we want that those hands in the soil. Yeah. I think another really great leverage point is the sensory pieces and sensory integration. And when we're outside, this the senses come alive. It, the senses are really, it's we don't have to plan that into our lesson plan. It's just happening. We just got a huge snowfall and it's like all, it's, it's just, there's so many so much that we can do out there and noticing the wind and noticing the birds and the changes that happen in our deciduous trees. And just having that, the sensory stimulation has a huge calming effect. And so right. sometimes when I'm working with educators who are like, oh, but my group is just so dysregulated. And you're like, what strategies have you tried so far? And they list all kinds of indoor stuff. And you're like, hmm, I wonder what it, could, what it could look like if we get outside. What if we went for a walk? What if we had? What if some of our go-to strategies, what things that we used in our toolkit, were to to be in the sandbox and to yeah. to touch the sand, to be able to have these hands-on sensory kind of stimulation? I think is really important. But then probably the biggest leverage point or the one that really rises to the top because it looks so different in the outdoor classroom than inside is physical development. We know that children need physical movement, we know that they need gross motor time to be able to run, to jump, to to play. And so I really am a strong proponent of having naturalized playgrounds. So not metal play structures, but rather naturalized playgrounds with stumps and things that they can climb, Um, having the raised beds, having a sand, big enough sandbox that we can get in there and have fun. But it's like the physical development, those enhanced gross motor skills is looks totally different. We want kids climbing and running and playing Um, that they, their bodies need it. Like this is a part of healthy movement. And if we are, if we're having this very indoorized childhood, we're mm-hmm. missing out on that. Yeah. And then, of course, like the whole academic component. Yeah, I think that sometimes it's not a either or. Oh, right. you have to do, you have early learning standards that you have to teach. It's not a this or that. It's, it's becoming, it's using our skills of observation to notice what are of interest to kids and then bring materials in that foster that and bringing in because our play provisions, the natural materials that exist on a lot, particularly in childcare centers that are in fenced in areas, they don't have access to a lot of of natural materials to touch. But if you're taking the time to gather a basket of pine cones, or you're bringing in some birch bark, or you collect some sticks, and you've taught, you know, children how to play with sticks safely, I think that's hugely important. Uh, and And those are opportunities that they might not have otherwise. And then all of a sudden, they're like, oh, remember those sunflowers we grew last year? Can we do that again? And it's sure. like, yeah, we can. And and then they they remember that silly squirrel that came and ruined it for us because the squirrel kept climbing up the sunflower and then it ruined the whole thing. And it was like, those are the kinds of, to me, it's like those core memories that kids have. Right, was right. the goal to have sunflower seeds that we could eat? No, the goal was to see us plant that seed, watch it sprout, watch it bloom, and the changes that happen. That That's science, not yes. let's print out a worksheet and color in a sunflower. I like, think that's not science.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100% because they have those, like you said, the memories that are formed and they can see a cause and effect in some ways and they can see, they can make predictions and they can also then take, like you said before about the plant, the wilted plant, they can actually take direct, meaningful action. So they can have empathy, but they can also take action and they can also discuss what should the action be. And so all of those things are basic. They're the basis for science, observation and prediction. And what does this mean? What is this telling us? And if you don't have that, if you're just sitting in there working off of a worksheet or whatever, I'm not trying to paint it as if you're indoors, you're just plugged no. in. Or something. But it's this idea of adding Adding these components into their learning it seems like a, a no-brainer in a lot of ways. It seems so obvious at some point. Yeah. But at the same time, it's not always obvious because we don't it we I think like for most people 150 years ago, we were sticking our hands into a bag of corn or wheat yeah. and having the sensory feeling of, oh wow, this feels so cool, and then piling it on the truck or whatever. And we're out there picking beans with grandma or whatever. And, but now we don't have those things. And education, which was at that time all of the standard literature, indoor type stuff, classic education, it happened inside. And and then everything, all the other stuff was happening in your daily life. But because our daily lives changed so much, that's Mm. why this is important now, it seems like. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And so what I like to do is really think about. So I have lots of ideas, lots of teaching ideas, lots of strategies that have worked, things that I know kids just love, and all these lived experiences of things that flopped, right? Let's be real. (laughs) That's as important to share with my adult students as well as, gosh, I thought this thing, I put a lot of time and energy into this thing, and it just, it wasn't, it was a flopper. But one of the things that I do that I find is being able to really, one of the I'm trying to think of the name of it year long, year long learning outdoors. It's a program. It's a a workshop that I've done. So one of the things is, this sounds great for preschool, because a lot of times in preschool, public schools do embrace certainly here in Vermont, but even other places are embracing play. I mean, that is how children learn. And they embrace that for preschool. But then it's like, all of a sudden, they click over one school year, and they get to kindergarten. And it's like, very academic focused, very teacher driven, sit and do tasks. And so I am really excited because the Vermont kindergarten conference, it's an annual, Mm -hmm conference organized by our agency of education. And so they have asked me the last three years, this is the third year, but they've asked me to be one of the presenters. And what I like to do is I like to show up there and say, here is these ideas, these play invitations, these play-based learning activities that we can do outside that totally align with your, your early learning standards and even the Common Core. And because- children learn through play. And so let's see, let's make it, let's make it easy for us to see how we take, we can do these things and we can use the natural play things that are happening, like doing it within the harmony of the season. So leave living seasonally, meaning that in the fall, there's so many organic, I don't have to prep anything. We just have to go on a walk and find the right maple tree. Oh, it's, That part of the school, that's where the really good maple tree is, good in the sense that it has the best colors, and then we gather the leaves there, and then it's helping kindergarten teachers, first grade, second, even third grade teachers, and my one outlier of the fourth grade teacher, and learning that you're beyond just your classroom what is on your campus? What can you walk to? And I think the Claire Warden, she's a a researcher from Scotland. She should be on your, I would love for you to have her on your podcast. I love to hear her speak. But Claire Warden talks about this idea of inside, outside and beyond. And so the inside is the indoor classroom. The outside is that kind of human managed, teacher managed space. And then the beyond for very little kids, if you're in a childcare center and you have little biddies, you're probably beyond might only be two blocks away, right? Uh, my huh. beyond in one of the public schools that I worked at for a while, I created an eco classroom and the beyond, it was really like... Uh, Fifty steps away from the classroom, but because we had a tree buffer, we really felt like we went to some magical land. And that with young children, yeah. it's easy. But this idea of inside, outside, and beyond is we can think about how we teach in all of those spaces. And so when I support teachers in that year-long learning outdoors program, and I do that as a standalone workshop, but then I also do it as a series. And the first time is good because it the teachers get excited about it, and then the second time we gather it's better because they're like it it worked april My kids were so excited about those autumn art there, the autumn art process art that we did was like, oh my gosh, they just lit up and they were even the ones that never want to do anything. And it's, yeah. And so teachers need these like minimal teacher prep kinds of things that utilize materials that are already in our outdoor space or materials that we already own. So it's not going to cost much. And then to create these learning opportunities. And to me, it seems so simple because I've been doing it for a long time, but for a lot of teachers, it's... It's just a different way of thinking. So yeah. if a teacher, and this, is, comes fr- this comes from a place not of judgment, but the teacher is used to doing their planning by going to Teachers Pay Teachers and printing a printable, that's what they know. So that's what they get used to. And so the curriculum course that I teach for the college, I'm like, you can't, you never ever write worksheet on anything that you turn into me. Because I will say, huh, how can we do this differently? That is more <laughs> age appropriate. Because likely these children will have the rest of their lives to be working in workbooks and working on worksheets. And let's give them these other opportunities. And I I like to say, but teachers need support, right? So yeah. sometimes I get hired to go in and work with teams. And if it I have learned to ask some questions before I get contracted for day-long events because I want the teachers who I'm working with to be excited that I'm there. If I get yeah. there and they're like, Ugh. arms crossed, eyes rolling. Yeah.
0: Here's another thing I'm going to have to do that I, that's probably going to be take me out of my comfort zone and I don't feel like it.
1: Yes. I don't, I, what I do now is I do a pre-survey uh, and I do a really simple pre-survey because I want to hear what they want to do, what they want to learn about. And so these kinds of uh, day-long programs that I don't do, a, a, a my my calendar is really tight. So I don't do a lot of these, mm. but by doing them, it helps me remember the obstacles that teachers have. And so I did a winter one with uh a larger program in the Burlington area uh, called Next Generation. And Next Generation had me come in, they have five schools, and they did the pre-survey. And it was like, by having the pre-survey, I really know what are the obstacles that they're facing. So I'm not just coming in to talk to myself for, for the eight right. hour day or whatever, I'm coming in and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm really hearing you have a challenge with wintertime and with gear. And this, these are strategies. And here's a right. toolkit that I've created, or let's work through this. And when we start to think about how we, we help people overcome their obstacles, I think that's hugely right. important.
0: Yeah. You're a hundred percent right on that. It's like you, you have to be invested in finding the solution and, Sometimes for a lot of those kind of in-service trainings, you just go, all right, here's somebody, they're going to get paid a little bit of money to give us a song and dance and let's just get to the chicken patty or whatever. <laughs> and, and that's the highlight and maybe there'll be something that'll laugh or, or whatever. And it's like a totally different thing when they're actually invested coming in and going, hey, we're going to collaborate and, and I'm going to walk away with five things I can use to make Absolutely. my life better.
1: And it's, I have found too, that I want to honor their knowledge. Like I, my, my master's degree is from U- university of Virginia and it's in curriculum and instruction. And when I first started teaching, I was in a very traditional, I was in a very traditional preschool program, sorry, not preschool program, public school. I was a mm-hmm. first grade teacher in Virginia. It was, this was during the, this was like no child left behind error. Mm-hmm. Those of you who've been around the block for a while, very much talking about this acronym, AYP, adequate yearly progress. And each year children are going to, and I started my teaching career during that. And I was like, holy moly, I have made a terrible life decision. Yeah, What am I doing? <laughs> I can't do this. I am going to shrivel up and just wither away here. Yeah. I need someone to come pour some of that water on, like I said, in the garden, because it was like, I just couldn't do it. And in Virginia, I'm not sure if it's still that same acronym, but their standards were called standards of learning. So that acronym is SOL. <laughs> I don't know if, yeah. It's like it's a.
0: They're out of luck
1: shift out of luck, That's
0: right. exactly. <laughs> a
1: different S word. But it's like, that was, oh my gosh. And we had these curriculum pacing guides where it was like third week of October, all of the first grade teachers are in the same, they're teaching the same topic in the, the math curriculum. And it was like this idea, but oh my gosh, being so micromanaged and really looking at it like as a didactic teaching practice of like teacher I am the wise one and let me give you my knowledge right. to it these all have to slow downhill yeah but thank goodness Pam Phillips was across the hallway she was a seasoned kindergarten teacher and she was like oh no let me tell you let me and she was a math expert and she was a teacher leader and she was like this is what you need to do and shut your door and then and I was like oh and then it meaning shut your door and do what you need to do. And so for me, it was like, let's get out of the door. Let's go outside and do this thing. It takes time and you can't be, if you're the lone wolf, like you are the one feeling like you're rocking the boat or you're the difficult whatever, that's really exhausting. But when you pay attention to your colleagues and see who's the other one who's wearing hiking shoes and has dirty fingernails and clearly like values nature and being outside, that's probably your person to go to. But it's hard to, for me as a leader in professional development, it's just, it's come, I feel like I don't want to go there to convince someone of doing something. I want to come there when you are ready, when you have, when your team has the capacity and the interest. And that day that I was describing doing the winter, winter in the outdoor classrooms as an in-person training, it was like we got so much done that day because we started at a point where we knew what were the challenges. And, and they, it's a, it's like that. It's not one and done. You need ongoing mentoring. So you need people within your team to continue to revisit it and go, okay, now we've got, we have a foot of snow on the ground and these are the challenges that are coming up now. And so how do we work through that and to be able to work in community? I think with others right. to come over, come overcome those really practical, logistical kinds of things because it can sound yeah. good on paper, but you really need some mentorship and some support to make That's it right. really happen. That's right.
0: That's right. But I've always found I've I've done a bunch of trainings before. A lot of times I do them for like after school staff, people who are doing after school programs. We had a great program here that went to 18 different schools, and they were it was a really solid program and they would have conferences or trainings. And I remember doing a class called Thinking Like a Wolf Pack, and it was about group dynamics within your Mm -hmm. program. So a lot of times you'd have these young staff show up and they'd just be like, I thought of a great thing. And they would present it. And then whoever was the leader in the group would like tear it down and be like, that's stupid. And then they're you know, they just like, okay, I'm going to go cry in the library for an hour and then come back. They were really trash because they were like, oh, my heart's on my sleeve. I thought this would be so fun. And you guys took care of it. And so I tried to give them strategies that have worked for me in terms of just how I see that group and how I interact with that group and everything. And there were teachers in those, in my trainings that were t- teachers for 30 years. And they were like, why didn't anybody ever? ever tell me any of this. Yeah. She, and and they would turn around and then I would come back to the school two weeks later and they would come, they would run over to me. Oh my gosh, I tried this thing that you said and it worked so well. And my group is so much better. And now I'm starting to teach my other teachers who didn't get to take your training. Why didn't we record the training? And, yeah. and it was just so interesting because I was like, okay, if I were continuing to do that, I would just try to preserve those stories of we had that success Mm -hmm. and stories of failure stories of success because it's good to have like strategies and everything those are really key but then at the same time you really need that inspiration to keep going which really comes from the story of here's how I helped this one kid or this group that was struggling to get it together or whatever it is so
1: Absolutely. And uh, I think it's those impact yeah. stories too, that those impact stories of how this approach supported an individual child is another really key leverage point mm-hmm. for really thinking about, but is this really important? Do we really need to do this, Rick? Like, yeah. why? And it's like, oh, but remember when Johnny would have angry outbursts in the classroom and would, <laughs>
0: you know,
1: whatever the situation was. And then. Sideways. When we went to our beyond space, when we hiked over to the town forest and Johnny came, he's at the front of the group, smile, grinning from ear to ear, carrying a walking stick, helping his friends, encouraging his friends. It's oh, my gosh, Johnny's self-concept when we're on that walk, even if it's only once a week for an hour, that builds him up to a place that we could never get in the indoor classroom. And when I think about when I think about how we are supporting all children, we have. It's just I I think you're right. Having the impact stories is important, even keeping a file, have a Google Doc or have a special notebook that you write them down. And it's those little moments when you're like, are we going to fund will the school fund to update the outdoor classroom or will we hire will we? Do whatever, yes. is it worth it? You're like, you know what? Sometimes it's those small individual stories of that child. And it's, right. oh yes, this is really worth it. And I just it helps those
0: administrators to hear those stories too. And to, absolutely. And your fellow teachers and your peer leaders or your team helpers or whoever. Man, when I was doing that program, when I did it that several times, I remember a couple of teachers were like, That seems like a lot of work. I don't know why I would do that. And I go. You already know what it's like to not do it in your class. Yeah. How's that I, working out? <laughs> how's that working out? I said, I'm not here. To, I'm pretty noncommittal when it comes to public school. I'm just like, hey, you don't have to do it. Yeah. Don't do it. That's okay with me. But you're the one with the problem. I said, when I show up at my, when I do an school thing, they're raring to go. I had fifth grade boys going crazy, making dream pillows that I was stuffing with just, they were just sewing. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. It was like. I ran out of ideas. I wanted to do something new. I just grabbed a bunch of cloth that my wife had. We made these really cool pillows. And I thought when I showed up, there was just all boys. It was like 15 boys. And I was like, "Uh Oh, right. I'm not sure they're going to be into this. And yeah. all the teachers came up after me. After, and they were like, every one of those children were so excited to sew with darning needles and yeah. make a pillow. They were so happy. They were just like, I've never seen those boys be quiet for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> And they just raved about it. And I was just yeah. like, okay, did you look at their pillows? They were horrible. But the, <laughs> well, about it, was, the it wasn't about the, it wasn't <laughs> obviously about the pillow. It was about the process, but they were so proud of it. They got to pick the colors and it was just, it was amazing because they were just like, you know, I think there's something about what you're doing yeah, and the way you approach it that yeah, they're just, they're like, it doesn't matter what you do. They, yeah. We'll go, because once you build that trust with those students that mm-hmm. you're going to do it, then they're like, all right, I'll go. Oh, we're going to like talk, hike to the town forest. All right, whatever.
1: Let's do it. Oh, we're going to yeah. go into
0: the crocodile swamp. Sure. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> April's never been wrong before. So yeah. So sure far it's fun. all worked
1: out. Yeah. But I think though, that sometimes what happens is schools will see like a program like yours and go, oh, let's have him, let's have that person come in and we're going to pay them $25 an hour to do this after school program. Right. And it's not sustainable to expect someone with your level of, of knowledge to come in and do that level of programming for $25 an hour for right. two hours a day, twice a week. It's, no, it doesn't quite work that way. And I, one of the hats that I wore was in, years ago in 2007, I believe it was, I was an school director and I went to the national conference for the 21st century community learning centers really? grant, the CCLC. Yeah and i just remember there really seeing this huge wide variety of programming that programs mm-hmm. did across the country and talking with after school leaders from from experts ones that were there as the keynote speakers and then people who were there as i'm the assistant teacher in a whatever and just this wide variety and then realizing what's unique about after school programming to me is that you can have these experts come in mm-hmm. and give this opportunity and will the dream pillow be the thing that the kid does for the rest of their life? No. But then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, Ricardo can make something out of nothing. Ricardo can bring in a bunch of sticks. And then all of a sudden we've got this thing. Ricardo can right. bring in some fabric and a darning needle and a little bit of stuffing. Right. And some fine motor fabric. skills. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. But I think we want children to be able to have these experiences and we want to be able to support these kinds of people who have these, yeah. these skills to come to bring Because for me, it's when I was one of the largest grants I ever wrote was a million dollar grant and we got it. And I was like, yes, like we actually have money to pay people to do quality programming. And as grants go, it comes and it goes, but it's, we have to be strategic in thinking about not only the access that our children have, but to make sure that we're really supporting the people who are asking to do the programming. And that's come up a lot too in my work with Farm to School is it's we want to be able to I don't want to be the person that's going to knock on the farmer's door to ask for free pumpkins. I want to be the person that contacts the farmer at a reasonable part of the year when they're not busy that says, Hey, we're at the elementary school and we would love to collaborate on pumpkins with you. How can we do it? And what can so that it's mutually beneficial rather than to think, Oh, those nature people, that farmer or those that wilderness survival expert that lives in my town should work for free because it's kids. It's just not, it's not sustainable. And the same goes true for, for our staff. It's like, we, we really have to be, and you've talked about this in some past episodes, but we have to be thinking about how are we learning to charge enough to be able to have this to sustain us? Because a lot of times nature, nature educators who are doing this work, it's, it's on their own back because they, meaning they're not making enough to put food or they're not it's hard. And so we have to think about how do we support this ecosystem so that they are able to charge more.
0: And it's also something that I found really interesting is that when I did some of my first after after-school programs, I would bring in a bucket, like a five gallon bucket with some sharp stones. And I would, I brought like another five gallon bucket with a bunch of sticks, like maple sticks that had bark on it. And I brought a drop cloth and some sandpaper. And I just showed up there and I was just like, hey, we're going to we're going to practice using stone tools, which Native people have done for years and years. And you're going to get a chance to take use this stone tool to take the bark off these sticks. Those kids like they went crazy. For, I've done this for years at my summer camp, but I was in a classroom. I was in the art classroom. We moved all the desks out. We're all sitting on the floor on this drop cloth. And for an hour and a half, they just scraped these sticks with rocks and you know, figured it out. They worked on it. Then they used sandpaper and they made these things. They didn't even know what the sticks were for. I just said, oh, they're for digging or whatever. But at the end of the day, I was thinking to myself, I should be wearing a ski mask when I go to get paid because I brought a box of, st- of sticks and some rocks mm-hmm. and that's all I did. You know what I mean? It was just yeah. like, I feel like anybody could do that. Like, why are yeah. you guys going to pay me all this money? And- but at the same time, the teachers there were teachers that started doing it, and they were like, "I don't even know why I'm doing this, but it feels so good." And absolutely. they were just emotionally getting a chance to like work on this and not that kind of like dexterity, like knitting. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. it's like self-soothing, absolutely. And and they would just go. All oh, those kids were like helping each other and passing sandpaper back and forth and sharing rocks that were better or whatever. And they just the way that they talked about what they saw was those were things that I've seen before but I just think yeah, that's nothing that's just what I do but that's not really nothing so it's like helpful for mm-hmm. us as educators if we're nature people to understand that some of the things we do is actually really powerful mm-hmm. and it's not just a box of rocks <laughs> right. and or, or a bunch of a bunch Never. of cotton flannel yeah. and some pillows pillow stuffing it's just like they don't really understand Quite, it's a difficult connection to make sometimes. But then once you start making it, mm-hmm. and you can actually do activities that children love and and trust, like it only takes four times or three times before they're ready to go. They will be. Absolutely. They'll do whatever you want them to do because now you've got some credit in the bank a little bit. I wouldn't Absolutely. do a hard thing the first day. I've tried that before. And then all of a sudden, they're like having trouble. They're like, I'm making a willow basket. And they're like stabbing themselves with sticks. And they're just like, this sucks. And that, that yeah, at that point, absolutely. you're going to have trouble for the next you know, few weeks. But if you start absolutely. with stuff that's easy, then they get to trust you that each thing is going to be, they're going to feel good on the other side of it. That's like really key that they,
1: absolutely at least
0: in the beginning, they feel good that they're going to put effort in. Yeah, 100%. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I I think one of the really key parts of this is I think that educators, they feel that call. They feel that, oh, my gosh, those sticks that we had and that activity that we did, it's really simple. But there's Mm -hmm. some beauty in that simplicity. Yes. And so I just highly encourage and I use the word teacher nature inspired teacher is, mm-hmm. is my Facebook group. We have 15,000 members from around the world in there, but I think of teachers as anyone who teaches you anything. Right. Yes. And so this is an inclusive group. This isn't, Oh, you have to be a XYZ right. kind of teacher, but it's for anyone. So I invite people to come check out the nature inspired teacher group. I highly encourage people to post questions, ask questions in there, share what's working like, sh- Just seeing a photograph of the description that you have, like, I consider that like a learning invitation. We've got the sticks. We have, we've got this plan. And for in early childhood, we do, I want to honor children's creativity. So they might end up building a little fairy house with the sticks Um, for the younger group. Like that makes sense. But I think sometimes we have to see it. Like we have to be able to see the thing happening to know that it's worthwhile. And early in my teaching career, I can remember a day very vividly. I used to have students from the local college come and they would, they were, I don't know um, if the professor's retired now, but I think he sent them to me so that they could just have some sort of different experience. But um, I would have these young, unfiltered college students that be like, but where's the playground? And we're standing in this gorgeous naturalized playground with no... Right. I said, oh, I think what you're asking is where is the play structure? Like, right. where is the metal? Yes. Where's the primary and I, colors the, and the equipment. can you find the slide? Because we had a ground level slide on a hill, on a bram that we built. Huh? And she was like, do you call that the slide? Because it was ground level. She wasn't used to looking at that. And I'm like, yeah, that's the slide. Oh, okay. And then it was like, they, it was foreign to them. So I think yeah. like in our nature inspired teacher Facebook group, I encourage people to post pictures in there. Because sometimes we just have to see it in practice in other people so that we're like, Oh, that's what it looks like. Oh, okay. Right. Don't go at it solo. Or maybe you are feel like the lone wolf and you need some other inspiration. And asking questions and getting support, like it's there. And then eventually, like I said, look at your colleagues, look at your, what are the other teachers who are talking about this nature adventure? They went canoeing for three weeks over the summer, or their fingernails are always dirty because they're gardening at home. Like tap into the people who also love nature. There's telltale signs of us. That's (laughs) This is an audio, so they can't see, but there are telltale signs. Oh, the one that wears the Birkenstocks and whatever. That's pretty much a lot of the population here in Vermont, but find your community, like your local community. And, or if it doesn't exist within your childcare center or in your school, what's the local community in your County? What other people, and it's, we don't have to be in these little silos. I'm a public school teacher. I'm a homeschooler. I'm a this and I'm a that. And, oh, I only do it this way. No, we have, there's so much commonalities between these different approaches. I just encourage people to find their community. And like I was saying, teacher that turns We learn, I'm a lifelong learner. I learn from lots of different sources. Reading books is a really great way of really tuning in to these teaching practices and I have learned so much over the years. Claire Warden is probably the person for me that's like at the top of the list. David Sobel or Sobel from Antioch yep. University, right. Antio- his place-based, and now he does more with nature-based pre- nature schools. I, You can learn so much from books. Don't feel like you're having to wait to get some sort of certification or some sort of whatever. Yes. You, know, you are the person to help these children feel connected to nature. They don't need a licensed naturalist. I don't Know, do they even license naturalists? They don't right. need the PhD right. in environmental studies. They need you who's, oh my gosh, that newt is interesting. How did that color? Oh, I wonder. Right. Right. And they don't need you to know all the answers. You saying, huh, I have no idea. Right. I wonder where we could find out more. It models for them lifelong learning. And so let's don't go at it alone. Find your group of people, find your community, and then maybe build a PLC, like a professional learning community within your school or within your school district or your supervisor union or whatever the structure is. And if that doesn't exist, there's lots of us out there in your towns. And there's just, I just really encourage people to, that they feel that call. If they're listening to this, just get brave and say this next month, I want to do such and such in my classroom. I'm going to bring in natural loose parts. And then the final take home point for me is the very best teacher is mother nature and prioritize it. And even I tell my students five minutes, you have five minutes for sure. You're scrolling or doing some other task that isn't changing your life. You can take five minutes and go outside and be out there, notice the things, breathe in the fresh air. If you're we have a lot of gray skies these days, but even the gray skies, it's important to be out there. Mother Nature has so much to teach you. You don't have to be an expert in it. You just have to be curious and you just have to keep listening to Ricardo's podcast. It's, it's, it's yeah, the right. way to go.
0: <laughs> a little shameless plug. I didn't pay you to say that, but I appreciate it. No, you're absolutely right. And it is like a key element that, in some ways, it's weird. It's like a weird dichotomy, right? You have on one hand, You have this element of, oh, we just need to do this thing and it's going to help the kids and it's really helpful. And on the other side of it, there's this element of, here's your, you're making it happen, you're doing it, and you are going to see the impact as soon as you are finished. You'll see it pretty quickly that this change will happen and you'll know you, your efforts (laughs) are, are helping those kids. And- But so there's this like pride you're going to feel. And at the same time, you're going to take risks. You're going to, you're going to be figuring it out. And it's just, it's a really wonderful feeling just rather than sitting in it and struggling Mm. and then going, yeah, I'm stuck. Like you said before, when you went into the school in Virginia, where you're like, okay, I got to make these suits happy. But meanwhile, I got these beautiful, bright eyed, wonderful children in front of me and I'm just crushing the life out of them. Yeah. And it's just killing me. It's not fun for them. Like, why are we trying to make a a suit in Richmond or whatever?
1: Yeah. And I, it's like that, that's that part where you're like, okay, do I stay or do I go? And I have people reach out to me. (laughs) It usually happens, usually happens a few weeks into school and it usually happens, yeah. At those transition times, do I sign my contract again for next year? Yeah. This is, and it's a really hard question because do you know what? For as much as we say that teachers are underpaid, it is a steady income. It's to have a contract, to have health insurance, it's a steady income, and that is It's really important, particularly for women who are single mothers who need to provide for their families. And it's, okay, they feel this calling and, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to open a nature school and do this thing and run these summer camps and do this and do that. And it's, oh, so you can feel this like push and pull of, so what I really encourage people to say is I want to be a change maker and Mm -hmm. I want to be, I know that the system, I am part of the system. I don't have to stand over there and look at the system and judge the system. I need to think about what changes can I make? But if you're in a dysfunctional system, you might not be able to function within that dysfunction. And so it might not be able to work, but I really like to think about, can I be here in the box, but bring my out of the box thinking, get my students outside and find joy. And I I know that there's lots of people like me doing that, who are public school teachers, who are doing innovative and creative things, who are, whether it's through farm to school model or forest school, forest immersion, or eco model, um, those are very doable. And if that can lighten up your teaching practice, that's great. But if you really feel the call to, I can't do this in the box anymore, I need to It's such a growing field and uh, the natural, I encourage people who are thinking more along the lines of getting a a nature school started or nature preschool, like checking out the natural start Alliance. That organization really supports this nature school approach, but it's just one of those things where it's like, we have the opportunity to be change makers and to, to not only advocate for what this particular group of children need that are right here, right now in my classroom, but to change the system from within. Right. When I hear people begrudgingly or talking down about the public, our public school system, it's, I'm interested to have that conversation with you if you've served on the board for a year. Have you been in, have you worked on the school board for right, one year? Right, okay, exactly. Have you volunteered in your local school? What have you done to help support the system? Because I can, I've worked in public school the majority of my career, and there are thousands of people working so hard to support children. And it's, to me, nature Base is what calls me, and I know that it's worth it. And so keeping to show up and to support those educators who are in public schools, and I keep saying childcare, because what zero to five is important age. And so they too don't have childcare programs across our country. They don't have the support of high quality professional development. And so it's really important that we think about how do we create their, many childcare centers don't have professional funds to send someone to take one of my College courses, and so it's important that we find and create ways for them to have access to high-quality professional development. And I can get that's we'll have to earmark that for another day. Yeah, <laughs> that's a whole really other true. soapbox. It's but really true that,
0: that is a big difference in terms of how where people fit into the spectrum. So some people will be a teacher and they will do nature-inspired teaching and outdoor classroom, and they will make a move that way and influence mm-hmm. teachers on in over ten or fifteen years. There's a big impact you can have. Other people will say, this isn't really for me. I'm not liking this. I'm going to start my own nature preschool. And when then all of a sudden, children are getting pulled out of the school to go into that. And that changes the system because then they go, hey, wait a minute, what's going on? And then I know other teachers are leaving because they're not professionally happy. They're working for forest schools. I know that happens in England. I know that's happened up in in a bunch of different areas where forest schools are are, are su- pretty successful. But at the same time, like you said, there is a big risk to leave a paid, paid position with mm-hmm. benefits to take your chances. And that can be really challenging too. And that's not for everybody. Uh, but in the long run, I think ultimately the movement that is going to happen is that eventually this is going to get integrated into our education. I think it's something that will eventually move into that because i think it is something that's so successful i just don't see any downside to doing it there's no reason not to do it from a physical therapy occupational so, therapy, therapy yeah. from a mental health standpoint from a learning standpoint. every single metric that mm-hmm. i've seen <clears throat> excuse me that i've seen every single metric that i've seen is positive mm-hmm. uh, I, I just i don't see any real negatives i don't know i guess maybe if you're like working in Abbott Elementary or something and you've got all these teachers fighting for different things you go eh, okay maybe it'll be a struggle but it's but even with there's a struggle it's going to eventually move in the in mm-hmm. that direction and then they'll will also be moving towards having real equity as well so that because it is expensive right to it is to, to pay for a school for parents when that's coming out of pocket so that's a, a whole nother element
1: absolutely I think that I really see it shift. I, I see the shift because I support educators and I'm in dialogue with mm-hmm. a lot of other educators, including a group that we meet of those of us in higher education who are really pushing for nature-based approaches to be part of the the teacher training, the onboarding right. process for pre-service teachers when they're earning their degree. Like there are there's not many, but there's a few of us. And so I think I've collaborated with a few higher ed folks who are like, how do we get this into practice, not that they're going to all they're not going to take one course, they're not going to take April's nature based approaches for early childhood and after school programs, and then become some like they don't learn all the skills that they need to, but that it's a viable educational approach, just as something right. just as viable as something else. And those are the ways that we change systems, right. And so yes. I think that we The more confidence that we can have in our clarity of message about why we do what we do. So if someone says, I got a bunch of sticks and doing this thing here, when you're like, oh, Wow. And to be able to speak. And I'm not talking about like fluff. It's just, oh, it makes cute pictures for us to post on Instagram for our school. No. no, that's not my why. My why is I want children to have these sensory experiences with natural materials, to be able to think in creative ways. The cognitive, we didn't even talk about cognitive development earlier when we were talking about yes. uh, developmental benefits, but these enhanced problem solving skills. You mm-hmm. know, if you are trying to build a fort, that is really hard, and yeah. I, I was with a group of fourth graders in their eco classroom, like a nature immersion half-day nature immersion. It's not something that I do regularly, but I was filling in, and I was like stepping back, and I was like looking at this setting that they had. It was in a town forest. They had sticks galore, like a whole forest full of sticks. They had some tools that the, the why wai- the waivers had been saved. Sorry, the waivers had been signed by the families, so it was safe for us to have knives and saws. Or actually, it wasn't knives, it was just saws. They had what they needed, and they were trying to engage in this fort building and the problem solving skills, the creativity that they were having and to communication. use. The, oh my gosh, the communication, because they were really right. frustrated at each other. The this super focused concentration and attention of trying to get the knots just right. And I myself am not good at knots. And I was thinking, ah, I wish my son was here, who at the time right. was. 14 or 15. And I was like, Oh, if only he was here. Cause I know he knows how to do that skill, but it was like that focus and attention that impacts their academic performance later on. Like, we're thinking of it like, Oh, we're in the forest. This is a half day forest Friday program. Um, and oh, it's like the pressure valve and they can it's like different. Right number. No. Yeah, man, they, no those different. skills translate to perseverance and resilience. And the days we went out there, um one of the teachers was on maternity leave. And that's why I was going out there with them. And I wasn't their normal teacher. And of course, I'm used to working with preschoolers. So when you go from working with preschoolers to fourth graders, you're like, oh my gosh, these are children are geniuses. They could do so much more. And I know you work mostly with older children. It's like, I'm zero to eight and you're like eight to 15 or something, but they're... It was just fascinating of what they could come up with. And then it was really interesting because in that fourth grade age range, like their imaginative play, some of them are still very imaginative and creative and others are very serious. And and so it's just fun to see children of all ages benefit from that. Even I was at Green Mountain Teachers Camp, which is a, a residential camp program that happens. It's a professional learning community that happens for one week in June, and it's very outside of the box. It's very different than like any other. I've done so many professional development things in my career, both leading them and as a student. But at Green Mountain Teachers Camp, it's, it's different. We are staying um, in these rustic little cabins. And being in that space was like, oh, it puts you back in the seat of the student. You were like, oh, I never had camp experiences as a kid. We were poor as dirt. Like my mom's not, whatever the cost was, I never went to summer camp as a kid, but being there as an adult, I was, it was just such a unique experience. And it reminded me like, would we get kids outside? Like I was focusing on those kids that like thrive Mm -hmm. when we go outside, but guess what? There's the other side to that coin, right? You have the kid who in the indoor classroom, smarty pants, knows everything, quotes everything, quickly do the math, got this skill, can do that, thrives, used to praise, used to like being first and having a winning essay. Go outside and they're like, can't get the sticks to stay together. That's right. They, that's uh, right. Ah, and it was we're not trying to tear them down. We're trying to build them up. But you know right. what, for some kids it is the flip side of the coin and this is so far outside of their comfort zone they too are benefiting from social, emotional skills, cognitive yes. learning, physical development, fine motor development. It's like, we want to push those kids to not to a place of discomfort, but to a place of, oh, yes. I do still have things to learn here. That's and right. So oh, I can watch I, that other
0: kid who isn't really a brainiac at math. And that yeah. kid really knows what, he, what they're doing. And yeah. I can then, I can, I don't have to be the leader. I can let other people lead and I can learn from what they're doing and appreciate that. And yeah. No, hundred percent.
1: Yeah. And I, I don't know. I, one of the other, so I think to, for me, like the top two pieces of advice, if we're going to try to wrap this up at any point, yeah. Carter and I could talk for a long know, time, right. but two things that I feel like spend time outside and commit to five minutes a day. That is not a big ask. And once you get out for five minutes a day, maybe you'll stay out for longer. I hope you will, but there's no pressure. Even five minutes a day helps you to tune in. Ooh, this is what 14 degrees feels like, or, oh, look at this interesting things that's happening with the ice formations on the little creek behind my house. Spend five minutes a day outside and reflective practice, meaning that you reflect. And I encourage teachers to do it longhand. Don't open up your computer because as soon as you open up your computer to type into the Google Doc, you're on Instagram, and then you clicked on the thing, and now you're like somewhere else.
0: You're down like open rabbit up
1: hole. a, oh yeah, oh op- yeah, total rabbit hole and. Guilty as charged. It happens to me all the time. But having that (laughs) journal and having that pen and writing those reflections, whether it's like something that you noticed outside or something that you observed in your children. In early childhood, we do a lot of uh, anecdotal note taking and a lot of anecdotal records because it's like our data collection looks different than it does for older children. But we become really keen observers. And I think that in early childhood, we use really use observation to tune into because our kids can't always communicate what's happening. So we use observation, but those same skills of observation is what naturalists use. And they begin to notice things. So do you need the PhD in, in dendrology ornithology? No, it's, Oh, interesting. The chickadees like today, for whatever reason, the chickadees were like, and we have a weather event uh, expected. Chickadees were going berserk on my back deck. And it's just one of those things where you're like, yeah. And you're like, Huh, that's really fascinating. And spend time out there, do reflective practice, and then find community. And I just think that those to me, those are like the keys. And I hope I get invited back so we could talk about it. Oh yeah, other no,
0: totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah, we're scratching the surface here. I really appreciate your time and also all these insights. Man, where do I start? But please, I just so everybody knows, we I'll have your uh, links to the nature inspired teachers' uh, Facebook group and any other links to contact you or connect with you online. Mm-hmm. In yeah, and shore, I'm sure I
1: recognize that some people don't use Facebook, and I think that's probably. A better use of their time, probably, but the other link will take you to my LinkedIn bio page. And right. if you opt in to my, I think I'm going to put uh, the resource that I'll have at the top will be, it's actually called Autumn Artist. It's an opt-in mm-hmm. where it's a really great curriculum resource and it's focused on process art, but it would definitely be something that you could use from two-year-olds to 102-year-olds, because it's just nice. beautiful activities that are simple. Uh, it is aligned to the early learning standards. So that'll be the little opt-in. But if you put your email there, then you'll be on my email list. And I send out an email on Thursdays. And I really aim to to give a lot of value in my emails about action. I, what people want is idea activity ideas. Yeah. And so yeah, I like to deliver in my email and also, of course, drip in there, like, pedagogy and philosophy and some other good stuff but um, yeah you
0: have some online courses that people can take too which are really wonderful awesome thanks so much for coming out and being on this and taking your time on your on a snowy day to
1: yes be out here with all of us
0: so i really appreciate it
1: i'm I just appreciate being invited. I really think the work that you're doing is great. And I just feel like I'm now part of some secret society of exactly. educator podcast guest. So if there's a hand signal, you can give it to me because this is just audio. No one else will know.
0: That's right. Get, a little, get the hand, the signal, the, cha- the bat signal or something. That's Absolutely. right. All right. Hey, thank All you right. very much.
1: Thank you. See you in the forest.
0: You bet. Thanks for listening to today's episode and for all the things that you do to help build a world that is connected to nature. You can get access to the bonus episodes, my forest educator nature journals and curriculum, as well as other useful content by subscribing to my Patreon page where you can support us at any level. You can find the link in the show notes for that and my website and social media as well. And I will see you outside.